It is interesting. Um, this won't be just us randomly jumping into a spot in the book of Mark. Uh, this is actually our 17th week in the gospel of Mark. Uh, and so we're not just jumping in, but to recap a little bit, uh, as we have been journeying through the gospel of Mark, um, we've called this series Man of Action for a reason. And if you've ever read through the gospels, there are some that really hone in on what he said. Uh, there, are, there are things about all of the Gospels that are unique in their ways, that they point to Jesus, but they all ultimately say the same thing. But Mark is interesting because it is Jesus on the move, man. Non-stop action. Next thing, next thing, next thing. I really think Mark was written for our generation. <laughs> our generation is always like, okay, I, I've got a three-second attention span. Mark was like, I know you do, so here we go. Here's the next one. Here's the next one. Here's the next one. You can't slow down because he's going to keep moving. And I love that about the Gospel of Mark. And it, for us, um, it, do you guys, how many of you guys know who Peter is? Peter, the, one, the, the disciple who's always putting his foot in his mouth. And, but he's the guy who, who really ends up being this missional guy to the, to the world. And he's, he's sharing the, the gospel. Um, what Mark is, traditionally what we know as Christ followers, Mark has written down Peter's teaching. So Peter, a disciple, a follower of Christ, first-hand account, Mark, a disciple of Peter, is writing down all of Peter's words. That, that's why we kind of, we, we, we don't really debate that, that, that it's Peter's words. We think that it, we're pretty sure that Peter is the one who Mark is, is, is writing for. And so there's a lot of details in Mark that would, would, would point to that. But Mark, as a young man, traveled with Paul, who was Saul, the guy who persecuted the Christians, killed the Christians, wanted them dead, who later came to know Christ... He traveled with Paul and Barnabas, and apparently Mark had a cowardly moment in his life, and he abandoned these guys, and it actually caused a rift in, in between Paul and Barnabas. And so Mark was a little, you know, the scene of a little bit of a content, you know, a, a argument, a conflict. But later in life, as Mark matures, we see Paul actually say, hey, bring Mark with you next time you see him, because he's going to be a help to me. So somehow the relationship gets... It's interesting. There, a lot of the details get left out. I wish there were more details as to what Mark did and, and, and how they were repaired, how the relationship went back together, but we don't have that, but we know that they did. Mark's gospel has a take on things that is written primarily to Gentiles. You, me, if you're not Jewish, you would be a Gentile. And what, what we see in Mark's gospel that is different than many of the other ones is is he does not delve into a lot of the Old Testament law because it's to people who have no clue about those things. He doesn't delve into a lot of historical or geographical uh, words. And it's not that those weren't important. It's just that these people probably had no idea what he'd be talking about. And so what we do see in Mark's gospel is Mark going, this is Jesus. You want to get to know Jesus. You want to get to know that he's different than anything this world has ever seen. You want to get to know who he is, and you want to get to know why he came and what he did. The announcement that Mark begins his gospel with is found in Mark chapter 1. And you can see what he wants to declare from the very beginning. Mark chapter 1 says this, This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. First sentence coming out the gate. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And to give it some street cred, he continues. He says, it began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. 
Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. So Mark is starting this, this whole thing off with, Hey, everybody, look, a good teacher's coming. No, that's not what he said. Hey, everybody, look, a guy with good advice is coming down the way and listen to him because he's really smart. No, that's not what he said. He said, hey, everybody, God is going to visit his people. Get ready. He has come. He has visited us. The good news is about Jesus. What's interesting, if you look historically, even before Jesus' time, there were people known as evangelists. They were these heralders of good news. So what that might look like is if there was a small nation who had been under the thumb of an oppressive nation, if another nation was coming in to kind of expand their territory, and they took over this oppressive nation, and they're trying to announce, hey, they would send these heralders who would go, hey, guess what? Your country has just been freed. Your country has just been freed. It's an announcement. The people either get to hear it or they don't hear it. They don't get to decide, I think we're not free. No, these heralders come on behalf of the country or the kingdom that has just purchased their freedom and says, you're free. These are the announcements. And so when Jesus is coming on the scene, Mark says, this is the good news about a person, not a list. This good news is about a person not a process. This good news is about what has been done by God for us. Mark doesn't give us a lot of wiggle room in going, well, Jesus is probably a philosopher. I love that about the Gospels because if you study them honestly, you're stuck with the results that you find, and that is Jesus is not like everyone else. Now, if you want to read it with your own lens on, you can find and dig and make it say whatever you want it to say. But the Gospels don't give us a lot of wiggle room. Jesus is unlike anyone else. Mark starts with the good news being about a person and that this person would be rescue, would be light, would be hope, would be peace, would be rest and life for those who could find it nowhere else. Mark's words hit the street about the time persecution among Christians was on the rise. See, in in Rome, they had their idea that, man, the followers of the way, which is what followers of Christ were called, followers of the way, um, they thought, well, this is just a spinoff of Judaism, and we've got Judaism on lock. We've got our thumb on it. It's okay. It's not going to be a big deal. But when they started to see the church begin to spread, things got a little shaky, and persecution for the church and for those who followed Jesus, death and imprisonment and and all of these things became a reality. And Mark's words of a suffering servant, a suffering savior show up and end up in the hands of a church who's going, we get suffering, he's suffering on our behalf. That causes hope. Like this Jesus suffered and died at the hands of sinful men. I am suffering on behalf of belief that Jesus suffered on my behalf and he rescued me and that there's no other king but Jesus. And that is not what you say in the Roman Empire because there was no other king but Caesar. 
And so these words came to the church as they were struggling to hold on and to realize that, man, Jesus suffered and died on my behalf. God himself stepped into time, put himself on the cross, raised from the dead to prove that he was who he said he was, and that invites me to relationship with God. That's peace. Jesus was not coming to relieve the thumb of the Romans. He was actually coming to lift the thumb of death and sin, which is a much greater enemy than Rome would ever be. And so when Jesus steps in and brings freedom from fear and death and sin, there is nothing that these Christ followers would fear. They would lay their lives down so that people would know that Jesus is the rescuer. And so today... We jump in in the, in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 6, and I hope that you'll continue journeying with us, uh, Mark chapter 6, and just reading through the Gospels as we are, uh, the, 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 the Gospel of Mark this, this month uh, and into August a little bit. I, I just keep reading it, just keep meditating on it, keep chewing on it, keep reading commentaries on it, come ready having heard and read the words from Mark. But in, in Mark's Gospel... What has happened leading up to where we'll be this morning is Jesus has been rejected in his hometown. They've been like, dude, we know who this cat is. We've, we've, we grew up with him. We know, his, we know his dad, and we definitely know the opinion of his mom. We know what happened with her. We know his brothers. We know his sister. They all live among us, which makes me think that all those stories that talk about Jesus as a kid may not be true. You know, when we talk about those, those extra stories out there that Jesus did things as a child, that he did these impressive things, I don't necessarily know if there's any weight to that when you have people going, we knew who Jesus was. He was a nobody. He did nothing of significance. He was a carpenter's son. And we're not going to listen to him. So if you're holding on to those thoughts that, man, Jesus probably did all these cool miracles when he was a kid, I don't necessarily know if it's true because his hometown was like, that dude ain't got nothing. Where's he get off talking like that? Thinking he's something big. He's just been rejected in his hometown, but he's also just sent the disciples out two by two. First journeys on their own without Jesus. Can you imagine the excitement that these dudes, wait, wait a minute, we're going by ourselves with us too. Jesus gives them ways and hows and what to do when they go and they go on their journey. I would love to have sat with them when they were unpacking all that they saw and heard in those moments. And then there's this mistaken identity that Jesus is assumed to be John the Baptist raised from the dead because Herod had him beheaded. And so Herod is like thinking that Jesus is actually John the Baptist returned from the dead. And so there's a mistaken identity thing because he's not. <laughs> he's the Lamb of God who takes away his sin. John announced Jesus was coming. And so we find ourselves with the disciples reuniting with Jesus. And let's just read the story. In Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. Now, I have to pause here. This is like that moment in a movie when someone coughs. You know what I'm talking about? Do you pay attention to foreshadowing in films? Whenever there's this, the camera zooms in on somebody and they go, <coughs> and then they look around like nobody heard it. It's the foreshadowing that something isn't going to happen the way you think it is. And so this moment right here made me go, I get what, I get what, you say you're going to have some quiet time, but what happens? Moms, right? 
nap time, right? Quiet. I'm going to work, get some work done, or I'm going to get to nap when these things happen. You say that out loud, you are in trouble because it's not going to happen. Just trying to help you. <laughs> Just don't say it out loud. Well, Jesus says these words. Let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving. And people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said, You feed them. (laughs) With what? they asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. How much bread do you have? he asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, We have five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven, and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. Father, I ask that in these few moments that we have together, that you would fix our eyes on the source of life, as Miss Sue has said. That you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who is able to meet all of these needs described in this story. I pray for a fresh um, understanding of these things, that we would not go, yeah, 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 I've heard that before, but we would truly open our ears and our hearts and our eyes to just say, Jesus, what do you want to say? Would we be a people who just want to hear from you? In your words this morning, it's in your name we pray, amen. Um, So you have the disciples returning from a a short-term mission trip. And if you've ever been on one, you spend your week or two weeks or however long you've been gone pouring out, man, and you come home exhausted. Um, For me, several years ago, I remember coming home, I think it may have been student camp we were at. We were gone for the whole week and just keeping up with teenagers, just exhausted. I pull into my driveway ready to crash, just ready to go to sleep. I open the door and my neighbor is standing right outside the door. I'm like, "Ah, don't do that. Don't sneak up on people like that. I get out of the car and he says to me, I could really use your help. My cat is in the tree. I hate cats. Sorry. Um, I just do. So I said, fine. I'm exhausted. I just want to go inside. This is the first thing I get welcomed home to. And so He's like, I'm just going, all right, let's go. I'll go help you. Um, I'm just walking and following him, and I'm like, so what's your plan? And he's like, here's my plan. And so he hands me a tarp, and he says, let's go stand under the tree and just hold the tarp open. I'm exhausted, y'all. Like, I, I'm, I'm so tired. And so I'd grab the other side of the tarp going, yeah, this makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't we do this? This is, this is great. I had a moment where I came to my senses, and I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever thought. Like, I am standing under a tree waiting for a cat who they're really submissive, and they love it when you tell them what to do. 
which is why I love them so much, right? Uh, jump out of the tree. Hey, come on, jump in. And we'll just start talking to him like, hey, jump into the tarp, you know? But I was so exhausted that I actually went along with this. Like, I can, it was like, have you ever been so tired you're walking in a haze? Like, it's like foggy. Like, I don't understand how that works, but it was foggy. And I had no clarity of mind. I'm standing there holding this tarp, waiting for a cat to jump down. And I'm like, that's it. I threw the tarp down on the ground. I went and got my ladder, climbed up the ladder, grabbed the cat by the back of the neck, got scratched a couple times, put it down on the ground. I was like, I'm going to bed. (laughs) Off to bed I went. One of the fastest ways and I believe God lets us know we are not God, is sleep. One of the greatest indicators that you and I are not Savior, are not God, is that we need sleep. I mean, it's so simple, but it's true. And Jesus speaks to the disciples and he says, look, you guys are exhausted. We need to get away because I know what's coming for you guys. A major crash is coming. So let's go somewhere quiet. Let's retreat. Let's refresh. Let's get away because you are not God. One of the greatest indicators that you and I are not in control is that our bodies have to shut down. Is that I have to close my eyes, trust my head to that pillow at night, and keep in mind that God is at work even while my head is at rest on the pillow. One of the greatest indicators that we do think we are in control is, is, that sleep, is the lack of sleep worrying about tomorrow, right? We think we've got to have it all laid out. But the truth is, it takes humility to sleep. It's weird. We, when, when being in student ministry, uh, for, for many years, we told our students, humble yourselves and go to bed. Why? Because everybody thinks they're going to miss something if they go to sleep, Right? That's what we do. That's why we can't help it but keep our phone next to our bed. Can't help it to keep Snapchat open, keep Instant Messenger open, keep Twitter open, keep text messaging available next to my bed. Because if I doze off, oh, I'm in my home, I missed something. <sighs> like, that's what we do, right? We, we, we think we can just be everywhere at once, and we can't. And sleep is such a good indicator that you're needy. <laughs> it is. Just go to bed. Go to sleep. Get the rest. Get the refreshment that you need. Stop being ashamed that you have to sleep. I know, for, for us, sometimes it's a, it's a matter of getting a babysitter. Why? Because I can run errands? No, so she can sleep. What's wrong with sleeping? What's wrong with resting? What's wrong with refresh? We need it. Now, Jesus isn't saying that this is the way you're supposed to live your life. Because I do talk to people who are like, I just need a break. And you know what happens when they say, I need a break? It becomes the way they want to live their lives. Like, we want to live lives of rest and refreshing, but we were made to work and engage and get involved. But then there would be that need to retreat and rest. But what we do is we say, no, I want to rest all the time, and I might engage in a season of work. Maybe. I just might. But the truth is, the disciples had been pouring themselves out and we're in desperate need of rest and refreshing. The CDC, the Center of Disease Control for Disease Control, wrote this article. It says that insufficient sleep is a public health problem. In the article it says persons experiencing sleep insufficiency 
are also more likely to suffer from chronic diseases such as hypertension, diabetes, depression, and obesity, as well as from cancer, increased mortality, and reduced quality of life and productivity. Sleep insufficiency may be caused by broad-scale societal factors such as round-the-clock access to technology and work schedules. But sleep disorders such as insomnia or obstructive sleep apnea also play an important role. An estimated 50 to 70 million U.S. adults have sleep or wakefulness disorder. Our sleepiness points to dependency on God. Do I trust him while I sleep? Do I trust that I, he knows that I need rest and my body has to shut down? Or do I think I got this and I can just keep going and I can just keep going. I can just keep going. I'll take another five-hour energy. I'll take another five-hour energy. I'll take another five-hour energy. And our bodies begin to shut down. Rest and refresh and get away and retreat. Jesus points these disciples to the desperate need that they are feeling. Rest and refreshing are given to us by God, moments and seasons of rest and refresh so that we can head back fully engaged. It's sad that all we aim to do in life is get to a place where we do nothing. Right? Like, that's the American dream. Getting to a place where we can do nothing. But is that what we were made for? I don't think so. I think we were made to pour our lives out. I think we were made to rest. But I think they go hand in hand. Jesus invites the disciples to get away, be quiet, and rest. But as the story goes, they don't get it. Now, if Jesus had been a nobody and had no reputation, quiet and retreat would be very easy for him and his disciples. But because he was known for what he was doing, it was impossible Jesus' response as the center of this mass of people following them around is one that is baffling to me. Verse 34, Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. As he stepped from the boat, he saw the people. You and I, as we step from the boat, we see the people. All right, back the boat up, back it up, back it up, back it up. Next, next dock, let's go somewhere else. That's our response, right? But this is my time. This is my vacation. Oh, there's people. Uh, nope, I'm staying in the boat. Back the boat up. Let's just back it up. Let's not let them get close. Let's stay away. Let's go to another place. Or if anything, I'll teach them from the boat. I don't want to get close. Don't want to commit. I'm just going to say some things. I'll wave my hand and we'll be on our way. No. Jesus saw the crowd as he stepped from the boat. He knew that the precious rest that he longed to be with the disciples and he was not going to get. And it was his compassion that caused him to step onto that land and be surrounded by needy people. Compassion, this word here is splogna. Say that word. Splogna. It's this amazing throat word that if you say it right, it, you sound like a Klingon and it's amazing and it's, it's this, but it means guts. And it was his 
guts. He felt this, this compassion for these people. He looked at them and he saw them and he was moved in his bowels. Like he was moved in everything in him to get out of the boat and step across the boundary that was water to land because he knew what he was about to step into. And this caused him to step into a place where he was not going to get the rest. The disciples were not going to get the rest. And why did he do it? Because he knew they were like sheep without a shepherd. He knew why they were doing what they were doing. This massive crowd of people, he knew why they were, why they were drunk. He knew why they were looking to religion. He knew why they were looking to list-keeping. He knew why they felt guilty. He knew why they were sleeping around. He knew why they were doing all the things that they were doing is because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that reference points back into the Old Testament where the spiritual leaders of Israel were not caring for the hearts of the people who they were to be caring for. They were blind and they were blinded by greed and their rules and their superiority over people and these people were being piled upon pile upon pile of rules and regulations and it was breaking them and they didn't know what to do and they didn't know how to live because they were being led as people without a shepherd. And one of the amazing moments is that when Jesus steps out of that boat onto the land, is it says he began teaching them many things. I believe one of the hardest things to teach to anyone is role confusion, meaning I'm a sheep, but I think I'm the shepherd. One of the hardest truths for the human heart to hear is that they don't shepherd their own soul. One of the hardest things for a human being to, to hear is that I think I'm a shepherd, but wait, Jesus is saying I'm a needy sheep and I don't know how to get from point A to point B. This isn't a, a knock on people's wisdom or how intelligent they are. And I hate how, how our, our society has taken the term sheep and made it sheeple and people following blindly and all of that stuff. Man, sheep are not stupid. They follow the voice of the one they know that's going to care for them. That's a beautiful thing about a sheep. And Jesus is the shepherd. And so he steps in and he's like, I see what's going on here. I know why you're, having, you're struggling with relationships. I know why you think money is going to do it for you. I know why you think having the perfect home is going to do it for you. I know why you think slapping some sexual identity across your chest is going to do it for you. I know why you think that you're, you're going to wrestle with all the gender confusion that's out there and you're going to choose things and hear voices. And you're gonna, I know why you're doing all those things because you're, you're a sheep without a shepherd. And it's just what sheep do, man. A sheep out on its own is in trouble. And the beautiful picture is Jesus teaching them many things. He's helping them unlearn so that they can learn. In the education world, the hardest thing for a teacher to do is help someone convince, they be, convince someone that they don't know what they need to know. That's one of the most difficult things in the teaching world is, is to help someone understand you don't know what you need to know. And you need to know that so that you can know. And I love that one of the very first things Jesus does is he begins to teach them many things. In these 15 verses, we see two very common experiences shared by all of us, exhaustion and hunger. And no matter how hard I try to say that I am self-sufficient, I am not. There are so many, this, I'm the self-made man, I'm the self-made woman. Let me ask you, did you... 
Were you, did you choose to be born in this country? No, you didn't. But you're still self-made, right? Right. I get it. I get it. Did you choose to have the gene makeup that you have in your life? No. You, but you're still self-made, right? <laughs> did you choose your... No, you didn't. Oh, okay. So maybe we're not as strong as we think we are. Rest, the need for rest, exhaustion and hunger point to our daily needs. We get hungry. So that should also help us realize that we're not self-sustaining. I am totally dependent upon a provider. And we'll get to this in just a second. But the question becomes, what is the provider like then? What is Jesus like? Is he, is he, is he wanting to meet our needs? Or is he one who's like, I'm going to dangle the carrot in front of you. Ah, almost got it that time. Ah, almost got it that time. Or is he willing to meet us where our needs are? And to prove this point that he is ready to meet our needs, I love how he messes with the disciples. When Jesus messes with people, pay attention, because he's trying to teach them something. But it's getting late, right? And the disciples say, Jesus, it's getting late. There's no one around. We, there's nowhere around. We're in a des- desolate place. We're in a quiet place. There's nothing to eat. Jesus is like, you feed them. Now, if you think he's being serious here, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this is, he's messing with the disciples, it's beautiful. I love it. I love it. You feed them. And the response is probably correct. What do you mean we feed them? With me? Excuse me? There is, there is no Chick-fil-A manager generous enough to donate 5,000 people's food. That will not happen. There is no Waffle House around. There is no Aldi around. There's no Trader Joe. There's no Earth Fair. We can't get these people organic, grass-fed, whatever we need. There is nothing around. And uh, Jesus' point goes deeper. And like, then, well, what can you find? What do you see out there? What can you get? Uh, five loaves, two fish. They probably did what my kids do when we tell them to go look for whatever it is they're looking. They just kind of go like this. I don't, find, I don't see anything. So I, I just happened to, in my eyesight, catch that five loaves, two fish. Here we, this is what we got, Jesus. They didn't even go very far, I'm assuming. And then Jesus tells the disciples to have everyone have a seat on the grass, get in, you know, small groups of 50 or 100. <sighs> small groups. And in verse 41, just to read it again, Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. Friends, I don't want you to think that this passage is about sharing. There are some children's Bibles that do suggest that the moral of this story is share. And there are some people who have tried to, to make this story more palatable, more chew-onable, more I can handle it if it's about sharing, but if it's about the supernatural ability of the Son of God to provide for the needs of the people, I can't deal with that. But I can get with sharing. I get sharing what I got. I get sharing and just breaking up my little piece of bread for 5,000 people to share. This is not about take what you have and give it to others. This is about the source of life. This is about the one who's able to continue to distribute to all those who are in need. This is the one who's willing to give these things out freely to people who are just sitting in grass. 
What did they do? Did they do anything? No, they sat down. What did they do to get that? They just sat down. You don't see people striving, earning. Jesus, I have all my, my tickets and my, my cards, and I've got this list of my perfect attendance at your church and your ministry. I am ready to receive. No, he just said, sit down. And he gave freely. This is not a story about sharing. This is about the one who is able to meet every need. Not just a tiny morsel. But the scripture says that they actually ate until their bellies were full. And there were leftovers. This is not about sharing. This is about us being a people who declare our dependence and a savior who's ready to meet those needs. I am not self-sustaining. Look, if it was up to me, my family would only eat tomatoes because it's the only thing I can grow. <laughs> Think about it. Think about it. You may walk around and say, I am self-sustaining. I can do everything for myself. Really? Did you buy that food? Now, where did that money come from? What if the money dries up? If, what, about, what about those farmers who provide that food? Are they self-sustaining? No. You know what they depend upon? Correct soil conditions, weather conditions, everything being just right so that they can grow whatever it needs to be grown so that it can be sent to the grocery store that you buy from. You may have bought that food, but if that farmer doesn't get what he needs, you don't get what you need. You are not self-sustaining. You know what self-sustaining means? Let me read it to you. Where is it? It's right here. Sorry. Self-sustaining means that I am able to live totally healthy without the help of any outside force. You are not self-sustaining. Your need to eat and your need to sleep are evidence that you are not God. But we serve a God who stands ready to meet our needs. Nate, as you come and we close this morning in worship... God has revealed himself in Jesus as one who stands ready to take care of us both physically and with what we need internally beyond food and rest. And that is what our heart needs most. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't stand ready to just give us a morsel of, of bread or a tiny sliver of fish, but that the gospel actually fills up his people. Hearts full and that if, if the scriptures are true, that God knows what we need before we need it, and he takes care of those needs. Now, they may be daily, and we may not like that, because I want three weeks of rations. I want three weeks down the road taken care of. Jesus said, I'm going to give you today, because you don't even know if tomorrow is coming. But if it does, I'll hold you then too. The beauty of the gospel is that these people experience Jesus physically meeting this need full with leftovers and in the same way, the gospel, the cross, full life. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life, life to the full, abundant life. That doesn't necessarily mean everything's going to be roses and easy. It means that you will be whole. Lacking no good thing, and you won't be running around trying to put all these other labels across your chest because you're trying to be something that he didn't make you to be. He's trying, he is announcing to you and to me that with Christ, we're full. 
And I love the beautiful picture there is that humility is the way to receive those things. You know those people when the disciples said, hey, get in small groups of 50 or 100 and sit down in the grass. You know those people could have been like, nope, I'm out. I'm not sitting down. I'm headed to Falafel House. I'm going to grab me something to eat. I'm going to get something good and I'm going to move on and I'm going I'm to do, do what I have to. I'm going to get out. I'm going to go and make this happen. I'm going to do it all for me. I'm going to walk around. I'm going to go get my food now because I don't believe that if I sit down, I'm going to get fed. It's like humility to sit down in that grass. Humility admits, man, I'm tired. Humility admits I'm hungry. But the next step is in humility is actually resting. The next step in humility is actually accepting the meal. The beautiful thing about rest and hunger is that, again, we're, we're, we're reminded that we're not God, but, but that God is standing ready to meet all of those needs. Rest and hunger and ministry. As we run to these communion tables this morning, where there will be families and people standing around the corners of the room holding a plate of bread and some juice, we are reminded again that we are not our own Savior. We are reminded again that we didn't do anything to deserve to be rescued. We didn't make ourselves pretty enough to do it. We didn't fix something right. We didn't make it happen. But that God allowed himself to be nailed to a cross, crucified by the hands of sinful men. But he took his life back up to prove that you and I, man, death and sin has been defeated. Death and sin has been defeated. And our hope for full lives is possible, not by cramming everything that we see in this world inside, but, but by grabbing tight and allowing Jesus to be enough. And so this morning, if you're one who says, man, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, I believe he is the rescuer sent by God, and man, I'm running to this table admitting I am desperate for a Savior. I am in need, but this table says he is willing to meet us. And so if that's your declaration this morning, we want to invite you to this table. If you're still exploring, if you're still looking, if you're like, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing, I'm not sure who this guy is, you can just remain in your seat pray, sing the songs, worship. You don't have to do anything, but I wanted you to know as we go to this table, it doesn't make us more religious, more spiritual, more righteous. It actually is a declaration of our dependence. And if we can stay there together, man, and let Jesus be the shepherd. Let him be the bread of life. Let him be the source we run to. The joy and the wholeness and the peace he provides. It's much better than the ones that the world is trying to offer us. So may you run to this table admitting I'm dependent, but also admitting that he is able. Father, as we take this meal together, would you please remind us that we're needy people. <laughs> we are desperately needy people. And would humility be the mark would we be people who actually would be okay with sitting down in the grass and waiting for that food to come around? Help us be people who don't, don't depend on ourselves. God, you know why we do what we do, and it's because we're running around like sheep without a shepherd. May we let you shepherd us.
because you're the good shepherd. Thank you for getting us from point A to point B safely. Thank you for bringing us all the way home. May Christ be our joy. It's in your name we pray.